Hey guys, this is Nate Chenin. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to let you know that WBGO is currently raising essential funds for our fall fund drive. Because of listeners like you, we're able to bring you world-class jazz programming and through WBGO Studios, award-winning podcasts. So please make a pledge of your support today. It'll feel good to be a part of the team. Visit wbgo.org support right now. Hey there, good people. This is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on listener-supported WBGO. And I'm Nate Chenin, editorial director at WBGO. We want to welcome you back to our podcast, Jazz United. We are stoked to have you. Thank you for subscribing and sharing. Uh, Response has been great. We've got another fantastic episode for you today. What are we talking about, my man, Nate? Well, this one is is kind of personal for me. As many, as I think everyone knows, um, earlier this year, on February 9th, we lost the incomparable, irreplaceable Chick Corea, pianist, composer, band leader. Um, and it was a shock. Uh, we talked about it at the time. Um, and when he passed, Chick was actually gearing up for the release of an album and, and getting ready to tour behind an album with his reunited acoustic band. Um, and that album is now here today. Uh, it's simply titled Live. Uh, it's out on Concord Jazz. And we're going to talk about the album and, and this band and where it fits in Chick's galactic output um, and what it means to each of us. Exactly. Exactly. That's what we do here on Jazz United. Um... We like to talk about things that have impacted us um, recently and from the past, you know, in our early ages. And, uh, you know, Nate, you have a very formative um, relationship with this ensemble. And I have to admit, it's not one that I really checked out extensively uh, until many, many years uh, after I was familiar with Chick and, and, you know, piano trios in general. You know, when I think about, you know, legacy and language. Sometimes my mind goes to some other formations, but this was one of the first piano trios that you checked out. That is true. Uh, and it's a story I have told uh, on social media, uh, but I think it's it's probably worth retelling here. Um, you know, and this is, Greg, this is one thing that we've discovered is a little different about our experiences. You know, mm-hmm. um, you were hip to some really cool stuff at a very young age. You know, I think uh, your your family uh, laid the groundwork in a really cool way, surrounding you with a, an incredible record collection. And, you know, I think you, you got your coattails pulled, um, you know, as a toddler, really. Yeah. Um, and I was surrounded by music as well. You know, my mm-hmm. parents were, were musicians and I yeah. was, you know, just surrounded by, by live music. But I didn't have anyone in my life who was a serious jazz record collector um, mm, okay. or, or even really a student of the music, you know? Um, so it was a little bit more catch as catch can. Um, and, and that's the, the context that we bring to this story. You know, I was a, I was an aspiring drummer. Mm-hmm. So this was 1990 um, 
you know, over 30 years ago now. And at that time, uh, I think some people will recall on the technical side, nobody ruled the, the world of drummers more than Dave Weckl. Uh, he was, you know, he had instructional videos. He had, you know, a huge following. He was a clinician. You know, he was just somebody who had the, uh, the, the fundamentals of the instrument together in a very advanced way. And so I was 100% on board, you know. Um, and so when I learned, uh, I think probably through chatter at the local music store, that the Chick Corea Acoustic Band was coming to Honolulu, um, the thing that I was most excited about was the opportunity to see Dave Weckl in person. Um, you know, and, and I was 14 years old. Um, I had heard the name Chick Corea, but didn't really know anything about him. And, and I actually expected to go into this concert and be sort of twiddling my thumbs during the, the acoustic piano part, you know, because <laughs> I was really into like, I was into the fusion thing at that time. Um, uh, as well as, you know, various, uh, hair metal bands. Uh, so, you know, my dad bought tickets. Uh, the concert was, um, November 26th, 1990 at the Neil Blaisdell center in Honolulu, um, which is in a sort of an arena. We, our, our seats were fifth row center and, you know, uh, they, the, the trio walks out. Um, it's Chick Corea, John Patitucci, Dave Weckl. And I'm thinking, okay, drum solo, here we go. Uh, but how does the concert begin? Uh, Chick begins playing unaccompanied. What I later pieced together was uh, his improvised prelude to the standard on Green Dolphin Street. And within about seven or eight seconds, I was completely transfixed. I spent the next 90 minutes literally sitting on the edge of my seat. Um, and, you know, it, it was a it was a concert that, you know, not to be too dramatic about it, but I think in some way it probably changed my life. Um, now, the funny part of it is uh, later that night, I, I, I went home levitating and looked at my fledgling CD collection because I had just gotten a CD player, I think, that year. Um, I had about 30, 35 CDs, and it was mostly Aerosmith, Skid Row, Motley Crue, uh, Warrant. <laughs> so, so I looked at this CD collection, and I still had the acoustic band ringing in my head. And I yeah. thought, well, what, you know, what can I put on to follow that? So mm -hmm. I, I, rem I remember this distinctly. I put on Aerosmith's Pump. <laughs> okay. And Greg, okay. it sounded like absolute hot steaming garbage <laughs> and the next day the next morning i went to school with with most of those cds i think about 20 of those cds in my backpack mm -hmm. and i just handed them out to friends wow uh, I, I wow said, i said i'm done with this man i can't i just i can't do it anymore yeah and yeah. from that moment on you know, uh, I, I think the pendulum swung probably a little hard, as as it often happens with new converts to any uh, to any doctrine. Uh, I, I went on a pretty serious acoustic jazz uh, 
purist kick for quite a while. Uh, right on, I eventually man. found my way back, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> in- including to some of the hair metal that I disparaged. <laughs> sure, but, sure. Uh, but you know, it, that was the effect that this mm. band had on me uh, man. At, at age 14. Dude, that, that's a great story, man. That's a great story. Um, wow. I can't really come behind that, man. That, that's wild. <laughs> I, my, my experience was, was, was completely different. And, and I want to be reverential because any experience that leads somebody to this wonderful music of ours, I have a connection with that passion. Um, and I try to be reverential for that. Um, let's see. The first time I really heard this trio was college. So this is like late 90s, 1997, 98. Mm-hmm. Um, and the drummers that I'm hanging out with are like, Dave Weckl. Oh man, do you dig Dave Weckl? Dave Weckl is the bee's knees, man. Dave Weckl is the best thing since sliced bread. I was like, oh really? <laughs> and you know, having the the you know um, historical um, listening of, of of Billy Cobham and and Kenwood Denard and and Jack DeJanet and Tony Williams, these guys that could play, you know, so called chops, but with a bit of a different um, information base. Right. Um, that was my reference. And when I heard um, the electric band and the acoustic band, uh, to be honest, even in um, my um, ignorance, I was kind of turned off by it, mm-hmm. just to be frank. Yeah. Um, it was a situation where I had all of this um, just information, you know, propaganda, you know, at me about you need to check out this one guy. And it pushed me away from it, to be right. honest with you. Um the early digital GRP recording <laughs> style did, did not yeah. help. It, yep. it did not help. Uh, you know, um, there's there's other labels that we could talk about that suffered from that same learning curve. Um, but I feel like this band, more than any other of Chick's trios, is almost like the three Koreas because everybody is hitting on a technical precision. Mm-hmm. No one makes a mistake. Everything is digitally recorded in this way that's kind of removed from this, you know, warmth, I'll use that word. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a, a, a thing, but it wasn't something that I was used to. Thankfully, it did push me from my comfort zone, but it was many, many years before I could really properly evaluate yeah, what and this band was. I think that your experience is probably, uh, it's, it may even be a majority opinion among serious jazz listeners, you know, and, and this is an interesting thing about, about the formation of taste, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously I subsequently went on to have a career as a critic and, and in some ways a historian of this music. And, and so then I had to reconstruct my relationship mm. with this trio, put it in the broader context of Chick's career. So let's talk mm. about that for a moment. Absolutely. Um, you know, it wasn't too long after I got deep into the acoustic band that I started digging further. And it very quickly led me to Now He Sings, Now He Sobs, uh, which was Chick's second album, his first um, trio recording. That's right. right. That's um, right. And it, you know, it was originally released on the Solid State label. And, mm-hmm. you know, now you can you can get it on Blue Note. Um, I will say this is an unpaid promotion. The, <laughs> uh, the, the Tone Poet edition of um, now he sings, now he sobs is is pretty pretty amazing. But you know that trio was Miroslav Vitus on bass and the 
incredible Roy Haynes on drums. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, probably one of the five most important acoustic trio recordings of the last 60 years, right? Yes, yes. Um, and, and, I, and I loved it. I loved it right away. But it was, it was more confusing than the acoustic band because sure because it was sure. in, in certain ways it was more formally adventurous as you get to know chick's career you know there's that trio which is really you know it reunited a couple of times over the years um there is uh the the trio known as arc mm-hmm. um which is basically circle minus anthony braxton that's right um with dave holland and barry altschel um, there's the the trio that uh, recorded trio music in 1982, uh, or rather recorded in 81 and released in 82, um, and that's again with Miroslav and Roy. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you know if you were fortunate enough to see Chick in the you know in this century, there's a good chance that you caught him uh, in in some trio, either one that recorded or one that didn't. You know, with with partners like Avishai Cohen and Marcus right. Gilmore and Jeff mm-hmm. Ballard, and you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. the trio was always you know a, a major format for him. Um, but there is, you know, I was really fascinated to to hear this new album, this you know, what mm-hmm. would have been you know just Chick's latest album, and instead has become his first posthumous release. Um, because I was curious to know, okay, well, how does this band sound to me now? You know, um, and and uh, before I get to that, I, I wanted to hear what you thought of this recording, um, you know, having having listened to it and and bringing to it all of your experience as a listener, including, you know, whatever relationship you have with this band. Right. It's the best one, period. Mm-hmm. Um, age and wisdom and maturity, I think, um, has really um, serve this band well. And again, it, just as a listener, you know, uh, these guys, you know, play circles around everyone. They can do anything at will. But particularly um, the stylings of Dave Weckl, this is one of my favorite recordings of him uh, because it has his very unique drum language combined with some of the lineage of the traditional uh, quote unquote jazz drum language. Yeah. Um, Patatucci, as we know, uh, has been a driving force in the bands of, of Wayne Shorter and Michael Brecker, you know, after his association with Chick Corea. Um, what a complete bass player. He always was. But again, um, just the, the the wisdom that he's amassed over the last almost, you know, 30 years now. Um, he's one of the greatest walking bassists, period. And in this band, he has a very uh, a unique uh, position in connecting uh, Chick and Dave. I don't know, man. I, I was really, to be honest, blown away by this record. I think it's one of Chick's finest trio projects. That's great to hear, man. Um, I I agree with you completely that th- these musicians have all just gotten better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And it's mm-hmm. it's one of the things that um, you know we know that that is often true in jazz in a way that it's just frankly not in so many other forms of music you know i think probably country music is like the, <laughs> the only other yeah. genre country music and maybe folk you know the only uh-huh. other genre where this is reliably true that you just get right. better and better and better mm-hmm. um but you know in addition to each musician 
um, becoming, you know, so much more mature and so much more uh, in command of his language. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really fascinated by the idea that um, you get these three guys together and with all of the changes, with all the changes in the, the language of trio interplay and everything else, mm-hmm. with the changes that we have in our culture and technology and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. It's still, the, the whatever the spark is that these three guys have together, it is unchanged. Right. Um, which is fascinating to me, um, especially when you think about how many bands Chick cycled through and how many collaborators just, you know, he was just... Mm-hmm. He was a force in motion, right? Um, so, you know, with that idea of sort of the the real rekindling, um, maybe we can actually toss to an appropriately named tune on this new this new yeah. set. Um, this is their version of the standard that old feeling. Feeling found on the new live recording from Chick Corea Acoustic Band, Dave Weckel on drums, John Patitucci on bass. That's uh, a standard uh, from Lou Brown and Sammy Fain. Um, Greg, did, an, Greg, did you have to look that up? I did. We all did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's crazy hearing Chick's reharm uh, of that actual tune. Yeah, I've played that a few times with different singers and that version really took me out of the headspace of that being a traditional standard. And it sounded like something that was really fitted for that band. Again, mm-hmm. a testament to the majesty of, of Chick Corea, you know, and these three guys. Yeah. You know, uh, he, he puts these little rhythmic tripwires in the arrangement. And, mm-hmm. and uh, hearing that track in particular, I was reminded yet again of how much Chick revered um, and learn from Horace Silver. You I know? love that point. Um, I love that point. Like his his approach to acoustic small band orchestration is just like super informed by that right. that Horace kind of composer arranger band leader lineage. You know exactly, um, exactly. And and you know in Chick's acoustic piano language, you know we can talk for days about what's all in there. You know mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of McCoy Tyner, there's yep. a lot of Bill Evans, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I really think that when you hear what he does with a standard in this, in this band, especially more mm-hmm. so than in the band with, with Roy and Miroslav, you know, more, more so than in other, other trios he's had. I feel like you get that, that like, okay, how can I break this up? How can I, you know, make this kind of a, a puzzle of sorts? True, true. I want to stay with those piano influences, though, for a minute. Um, one that you didn't name that is crucial uh, is Bud Powell. Yes. And, yep. and and for the attack, but also, again, the level of technical mastery. You know, Bud Powell before 1951 um, was the next greatest thing to, to Art Tatum. And I think that Chick 
somehow in his uh, majesty is able to summon uh, that level of, of technical grace, yeah. uh, as well as these other players, you know, John Patitucci, um, Dave Weckl. I mean, they, they just, they make no mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think for mere mortals, you know, like myself, you know, a, a, a little mistake once in a while, you know, <laughs> <laughs> might be, you know, uh, appreciated. But I, I think one of the things that makes this new record really stand out is um, there's a musical wisdom um, there's a bit of more, um, air in the music. Mm-hmm. There's brevity, uh, in, in some instances, um, they've shown you over the years what they can do as individuals and particularly as this unit, but where maybe I was missing some of the contrast early on in this band, I feel like I'm hearing that and I'm having that now. And it really has to do with, you know, how these guys, have matured. Um, let's talk about Morning Sprite yeah. you know, a, a, a little bit. Um, this version, this new version of Morning Sprite um, is a bit more relaxed in tempo. I compared this, Nate, with uh, the version on Alive from 91 mm-hmm. and then the original uh, version on um, the 1989 acoustic band debut. I think knowing sometimes where to put the tune tempo-wise takes time. And I feel yeah. like Morning Sprite, for some reason, the way that I listen on this record, it's right. It's just right. Mm-hmm. It's just perfect. They found the right beat to play this tune on. It lays. Just, yeah. 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 I think that's a great point um, about about tempo, and I think it also speaks to where these musicians were coming from. It is no small thing that this acoustic band was a spinoff of the Chick Corea electric band. These guys were were playing fusion by day, and, right. and you know it was like it was like yeah. the uh, this was the this was the Clark Kent to their Superman in a certain mm-hmm. way. You know, mm-hmm. it was like. And so certainly not in in terms of the um, the impact of the music uh, or anything else, but but there was a sense that like this was the lower octane version of of like a flagship, you know, right. Um, right. And and I think, you know, it's it is often difficult even for the greatest musicians to like toggle that switch so mm-hmm. quickly, you know, mm-hmm. Um and a lot of the a lot of the criticism of this band at the time, I think, was um, some of it was was unfair, but I think some of it was yeah. fairly perceptive in the sense that this was an acoustic piano trio that that was kind of coming at that tradition mm-hmm. uh, from a weird angle. Mm-hmm. It was different. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it was different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know, you mentioned Bud Powell earlier, mm-hmm. and it reminded me. That uh, in my litany of uh, of chick trios, I didn't mention one of my favorites, which is um, the the band he had with Christian McBride and Brian Blade. Oh yeah, and now that's a trio where anytime the material got in the orbit of Bud Powell, mm-hmm. it just felt right. Yeah. You know, it was like yeah. oh, okay, 
Like mm-hmm. this is this is the jazz tradition. Like we mm-hmm. are we are sitting right in the middle of it, you know, in a in a mm-hmm. comfortable leather easy chair. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, and it has to do with where those guys are coming from, you know? Yes, it does. And and frankly, just you know, Dave was not coming from that tradition when he right. joined when he joined Chick. Um right. and John uh was in a certain way, but he was he was playing a lot of a lot of like um, fusion-y stuff. He was playing a lot of electric bass and mm-hmm. they weren't living in that space all the time. Right. And I think in all these years since, um, I mean, n- we don't need to talk about what a, what a living legend John Patitucci has become. Mm-hmm. Although uh, this may be the moment to, to tease <laughs> to, to something we haven't mentioned yet. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with John Patitucci over Zoom about this trio and about this album um, and a little more broadly about his relationship with Chick. Uh, we had a really nice conversation and a few things that he said uh, really illuminated this music in a new way for me. Uh, so Greg, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to toss to that now. Let's do that. Let's do that. John Patitucci on Jazz United. John Patitucci, thank you for joining me on Jazz United. Thank you, Nate, for having me. It's great. You know, I'm so excited to talk with you specifically about the acoustic band. I know we've had conversations more than once about your role in the Wayne Shorter Quartet uh, and your own music. Um, But there's something very specific that happened in this trio with Chick Corea and Dave Weckl. And, you know, now that we're talking about it in the past tense, I wonder if you have any sort of top line reflections on on what this band meant to you mm. um, and what the experience of being in that band was well for me it was interesting because um when i first got the gig with chick i was playing um in victor feldman's trio um i had played at a jam session that gail moran was at chick's wife who plays mm-hmm. piano and sings at chuck mangione's house out there when i was living out in california and um we were playing uh, like a bebop jam. You know, I was over there playing acoustic and she heard me, went home and told Chick about me. And then the next thing I knew, I was playing with Victor Feldman's trio and we were invited to play, to hang and play a little bit at Chick's house uh, at these Valentine's Day parties that they had every year. So uh, there I was playing trio with Victor Feldman in Chick's living room. Wow. How old were you at this point? Maybe about 24 or something like that. Okay. Something, something pretty young. And... um. I've been wanting to play with him for years and didn't really know how to get in touch with him, frankly, because I was playing with Joe Farrell and mm-hmm. I would always, and, and Ayerto, and I would always say, well, what, does he ever have auditions? And they said, no, <laughs> not <laughs> like that. When I met him, we got to know each other at, at his house. And then the next year at that same party, I also played in a chamber orchestra to get him ready for these Mozart double piano concerto things he was doing with Keith Jarrett. Yeah. So at that point, he asked me, do you play electric? And I said, well, I started on electric and I do play uh, quite a bit here in L.A. as well. I, I was sort of always, a, for me, at a certain point, right as soon as I started playing acoustic bass, it became both instruments and they were, I loved them equally. So, yeah. Um, but I have to confess, when, when he first said, oh, yeah, I'm going to start this electric thing. I was hoping, you know, we were going to go out and play trio at first because that was, you know, I, I loved his piano playing so much. Not to say that I didn't love his Rhodes and all the other stuff because I did, but just the idea of that intimacy of playing with chicken, a very small ensemble. Right. Is, is uh, pretty amazing. So when the electric band started, it started out as a trio. 
by the way. It was acoustic and electric, and it was just Dave and I and him. Yeah. And he had all the synths, and I had both axes. So it was a very interesting and creative time. And then we started adding the other instruments, and it was, it broadened the orchestration, and it was cool. It was great. And then he said, well, I really want to play some trio. I think he, he wanted to get back to some trio playing, and he enjoyed playing with Dave and I. And so... I remember in the early 90s, I guess it was, we started the trio. And um, it was a blast to be able to play in both bands with him. Because mm-hmm. I grew a lot. I was challenged in so many ways playing uh, any music with your career. You're going to be challenged. I don't care what you yeah. play. You're gonna, it's going to change you. Yeah. Did you feel that having the electric band precede the trio uh, informed the way that the trio formed its language in some way, you know, would it have been different had you and Dave come in, you know, from the beginning with the understanding that this is an acoustic piano trio? Uh, yeah, I think it would have been because Dave, um, the, the period of the trio at the end was really special. Um, Dave even altered his kit and had more of a bebop kit with symbols that were more tuned to that. Because he came to me before we started doing it again, after many years of not doing it. He said, you know, I want to change my approach. I want, I want to really tune the drums differently and really dial in. He said, you know, when we first started to do the trio, he said, I wasn't in that headspace at first. And I adjusted to it. And he's such a great drummer. I mean, he, he could play anything. But to me, what became even incredibly more special was at the end, the way the trio played when we got back together. I wish we had a, a record of the, you know, the, the live record that we just put out is the beginning of the tour mm-hmm. before right. we started playing. There's some live gigs that were like, whoa, I mean, it got to another place. You know, when I, when I think about you in an acoustic trio format, um, especially in light of these last, you know, 20 years or so, um, of course, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the band that I think most recently was going by Children of the Light, right? Yeah, the trio. Um, yeah, you yeah. and Danilo Perez and Brian Blade and all those moments in a Wayne Shorter quartet concert when it would become the trio, you know, yeah. um, but then also the separate life that you had as a trio. Um, and so it just it makes me think about you playing in a trio context you know, and there's been many others too. Um, but I wonder what you feel Chick did in that setting that was different from others. Yeah, Chick, Chick well, Chick uh, being one of the most prolific and important composers in the history of jazz music. And, you know, uh, and, and, and certainly, um, you know, when I look at my life and the and the people I've had the long term relationships with, it's just Chick and Wayne and Herbie too. But in the yeah. band sense, I've been in bands with Chick and Wayne for extended periods of time, and both of them shared this incredible compositional output, and incredible compositional depth, and incredible compositional exploration. Like they, they didn't really. Um, they didn't get bogged down by by the artificial rules that some people have about mm-hmm. what is jazz and what isn't. Yeah. So they just wrote great music, period. <laughs> and that changes you when you play the music of these masters your whole, like as, for me, I mean, you know, uh, 
for 40 years or whatever, it just changes your life. Chick left us in February of this year. Um, in a certain way, it feels longer, <laughs> you know, because it's maybe because the events of this year have been so, you know, have been moving at such a breakneck pace. Yeah. Um, but I wonder what reflections you have, you know, as we're as we're winding down here. Um, any thoughts about, um, you know, what it meant to lose him and and how you remember Chick Corea as an artist and as a as a friend? Yeah, oh boy. Uh, I could go on and on, actually, because he really, um, he helped me so much. He, um, you know, there's a phrase that people in modern society talk about, you know, I, f I feel like they, I, I, was, I was seen, you know what I mean? Mm. People are yeah. very important for people to be seen for who they are, they're trying to be. And um, sometimes that's a healthy thing. Sometimes I think it becomes a little too um, self-oriented in our modern world where everything mm -hmm. is, you know. But... With Chick, he really um, helped us a lot. He encouraged me as a player, not only as a player, but a composer, and got me my first recording deal so that I could get my compositions out there. And he, he was always very inspiring in that way, and he was very mentoring in that way. And he, um, he was a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs, and we, you know, he took me all around the world. And he... Um, he looked after everybody. He, you know, he he made sure that everybody was um, had a platform to grow and and express their music. His his vision was also to have everybody be able to do their own thing and then come back to the band. Yeah. He, he wasn't selfish about it. it. wasn't like, oh yeah, you're just gonna play with me and then don't don't think about doing anything else. He was very generous in that way. Um, he he did so many things for us and 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 then then there was just the pure. A joy of playing with him and the communication thing was intense. Mm, yeah, I spent most of my life like you know looking like at the piano, like at him. You know, um, if you see any videos of his playing, you see me looking straight. I mean, we're locked. You know, yeah. so that yeah, communication yeah. and that level of connection was something very beautiful for me. Uh, it, I learned so much. Uh, and, and I always like to tell the story, you know, I'd played with some people before I played with them. So I thought I was an improviser and that I could deal with changes and everything. And I, the first rehearsal, you know, you know, his tunes are very challenging and his comping is so powerful that, um, you know, when the trio began, it was like in the electric band, it was so scary. Like he'd play a solo and guess who had to go next? And I was like, <laughs> right. oh my God. And then the comping started. It was like being in the ring with Ali. Pam, poom, pop, pop. Just like, ah. you know, I felt like I was getting blown out of the, the water by the comping. The comping was way more interesting than my solo. <laughs> and I had to learn how to leave space so that we could have dialogue. And that over the years really evolved. Mm, yeah. The way he comped yeah. and the way the dialogues that we would get into and, I learned a lot. And he introduced me to Wayne and Herbie. And um, the very first job that I had with him, this was hysterical. So he, he said, oh yeah, by the way, the first gig, um, uh, Tommy Breckline's gonna play drums. He was the drummer who played with him before Dave came. He was in other bands with him. And uh, Dave hadn't come out yet to rehearse or play. He was tied up. So, so Tommy's gonna play and it's gonna be uh, you and me and Tommy and Herbie and I. 
you know, <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, so and the first gig was the Merv Griffin television show. Uh -huh. There we are. They're getting awards for contemporary keyboard magazine and stuff. And I'm on stage and I look across the stage and there's Herbie and Chick. Like, Chick, Herbie, wait, that's Chick. That's Herbie. What? You know, and I, I it's like I thought I had died and gone to heaven, you know. That was the first gig. Well, John, thank you again for, for joining me. This was really um I really enjoyed this and oh, thank you. you know, and it's it's great just to uh, reminisce about this band and about Chick. Um and I'm you know, congratulations on the release of this and as I say I'll say it again, I'll put it out in the universe. Hopefully we, we hear more from this from this trio. Um the journey, you know, the journey is is ongoing. Oh, thank you, man. I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, shout out to John and uh, man, that, that was a, that was a really good get for us, Nate. Um, one of the things that he talked about early on was the fact that he had been playing in Victor Feldman's trio. Yeah. And there were these successive uh, visits to Chick's house and you really have to have ice water in your veins to be able to play at Chick's house. Chick is there <laughs> and be in the band of, of Victor Feldman, one of the greatest cats that deserves more shine uh, from that West Coast scene. I really, really didn't know that. And I was surprised to learn that. And the fact that, uh, again, you know, Patitucci is having these encounters with former Chick Corea sideman. Hey, man, does he have auditions? Does he audition folks? Nah, man, he doesn't do that. Yeah. But, you know, it's the right time. It's the right place. It's just amazing what happens. You know, he was supposed to play with Chick Corea. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and just the fact that uh, he, he confirmed that opportunity and shown so brightly throughout those years, um, that was just a great story uh, to hear. It, it gives me hope for for some of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> it's it does feel like one of those. Um, as I said to John, like the jazz lore has has a few of these stories, right? Or just uh -huh. like um, almost like a, a modern fairy tale. Right. Um, but that you know that detail he shared about the the first gig being on live television with not only with Chick, but also with Herbie. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's uh, mm -hmm. you know, and it speaks, John, John is far too modest a, uh, a person to, to say anything like this, but it speaks to his composure, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and, you know, obviously not only a fantastic musician, but also just like Mr. Imperturbable, you know, mm -hmm. like he's, he mm -hmm. can, he can deal like no yeah. matter what's happening, he can yes, deal. He can. Um, but I, I loved hearing, just how much of a mentor Chick was to him, um, yeah. you know, and it goes so far beyond the bandstand. Um, just a really, you know, I mean, it's it's nice when you hear a story like that about one of our departed icons, and mm -hmm. it, and it makes you feel even better <laughs> about yeah. about who they were in the world. Absolutely, absolutely. I have a question for you. Um, if I could get. Uh... You to put your critics hat on here. Sure. If this album live um, would have been the first or second offering from this band, do you think that they would have been uh, better received critically, um, popularly? What are your thoughts on that? I have to say yes. I mean, mm. uh, I think that um, some of the objection that people had 
to this trio was um, it, it had to do with that sort of distance from, you know, the, the mainstream piano trio uh, conventions, you know, even mm-hmm. sonically. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you've pointed out, that distance is closed considerably on this release, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like it would have felt a little bit less alienating to listeners who were pushing back at that time against, you know, the, the fusionization of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, remember too, that 1989, 1990, we were not quite a decade in to this very, very persuasive movement. Yeah, that's uh, true. This sort of reclamation of the acoustic jazz tradition. You know, mm-hmm. it, its most visible spokesperson, as we've discussed, is was Wynton Marsalis, of course. Mm-hmm. But there were there were plenty of other people who were who were sort of waving that flag. Yeah, and so the conversation, you know, and and meanwhile there were bands like the um, Electric Band. Um, and, you know, the Yellow Jackets mm-hmm. and, you know, a handful of these other groups that were immensely popular. Yeah, <laughs> you know, true. so that's there was true. this real kind of rift between, um, you know, the sort of like keep it acoustic, like, you know, mm. um, like don't even on those on those recordings uh, uh, that Branford Marsalis put out during that time you remember this greg like oh, yeah. they even talked about like no bass you know, direct <laughs> you, we avoided use of the dreaded bass direct on this recording yeah. you know it was yeah. like mm-hmm. they, they felt the need to actually talk about the uh mm-hmm. the, the the miking of the bass on the yeah. on the album because it <laughs> was right. there was such a pushback you know mm-hmm. just like so I, I think all of that sets the table for the way that the acoustic band was received you know mm-hmm. and it's interesting mm-hmm. To think about how much things have changed, right? Um, yeah, you know, we have a generation of um, younger musicians who, um, you know, they love George Duke and Stanley Clark, yeah, you know, absolutely. and they and they love uh, Mahavishnu and Return to Forever, um, and there's not really this sense of you have to pick a side, exactly. Um, and exactly. so I, I think you know, uh, as as is often the case when we talk about that generation, um, I can't remember what John referred to them as, but, you know, basically Chick, uh, Herbie, Wayne, Tony, um, mm. Joe Zavinol, you know, all of those people who were, you know, Dave Holland, all those people who mm. were in that, that generation of Miles Davis, they all sort of did the thing, you know, they yeah. all, they all like moved in and out of these different sonic formats and different sort of genre formats and the conversation around them uh, sometimes wasn't ready for it. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, I love how you put that together and I'm in agreement with that. I really think that this new record is going to um, contribute greatly to that band's legacy. Um, Of course, to Chick's legacy and uh, inspire, you know, hopefully uh, a new generation uh, of listeners and players uh, based on the prowess and, and wisdom of these cats, man. I'm glad this is available. So the album is simply titled Live. It is the first posthumous release by Chick Corea. My guess is that it is uh, certainly not the last. Um, 
The album is available on Concord Jazz. We will include a link on our show page. Um, and uh, yeah, Greg and I both recommend it. Speaking of recommending, this is the moment in our show that we like to call This I Dig. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Greg and I each pick something that we've been digging. And uh, so I want to toss it to you first, man. Uh, this week's pick is uh, definitely old school in all senses of the word. But man, I have been having a great time um, on Spotify with the Golden Gate Jubilee Quartet. Mm. This is uh, an all acoustic uh, vocal band uh, founded in the 1930s uh, that ranged from you know popular radio hits to deep, deep uh, folk African-American gospel music. Um, they are uh, pretty amazing at, at what they do, and they laid the foundation um, as basically a bridge between uh, Jubilee singing, uh, Negro spirituals, and what came after them, um, quartet groups such as uh, the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers. Mm -hmm. They're the bridge between these two groups. If you haven't heard them, uh, check these brothers out. Um, their original recordings from the 30s, early 40s, I would say, are the ones to hear. Again, the Golden Gate Jubilee Quartet. Beautiful. My pick is also a bridge of sorts, um, but it is very contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, if you listen to the show, you know that uh, WBGO recently dropped our massive fall preview. Um, and it was a huge amount of stuff we packed in there. But inevitably, things slipped through the cracks. And uh, I realized shortly after we published Fall Preview that I had left out something that I, I really wanted to, uh, to shout about. So I'm okay. going to do my shouting here. Mm -hmm. um, this album is, is out now. It just came out. And it is Kinfolk 2, See the Birds. It's the new album by drummer and band leader Nate Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, it features uh, Michael Mayo on vocals and a guest turn by Ooh. Brittany Howard. Yeah, uh, it's got Fima Efron on bass, John Coward on on piano, and mm -hmm. uh, you know we talk about uh, we've talked in this episode about um, musicians who don't feel the need to choose a lane or choose a format. Mm -hmm. Nate mm -hmm. Smith is is out in the forefront. Uh, he is doing the work and. He the way he put things together on this album is really really compelling to me. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's uh, I don't want to call it crossover music because I don't feel like the commercial aspect is at the forefront of of his motivation. Mm -hmm. But as we talk about growing the audience for this music, I think this is a great example of how to do that. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it speaks in multiple registers, and I think you know. The most important thing is that it's it's just incredibly sharp and the, the groove is deep. Man, I have not heard this yet, but I'm excited to hear that because uh, in one of my first days um, as a, a tri-state resident, I actually caught the A-train uh, and guess who was on the A-train? Nate Smith. Nice. We, we rode up to Harlem together and he was telling me about preparations uh, for this album. Uh, and just to hear, you know, what he has achieved based on our conversation, I'm really, I'm really excited about that. I'm glad that you shouted that out today. And um, even more coincidentally, I just heard him 
a couple of days ago with Brittany Howard. He's nice. the drummer for her band. Yeah. Uh, my good friend uh, and musical cohort, uh, Paul Horton, is uh, one of the keyboardists in that band. And man, they set Forest Hills Stadium on fire. There was nothing left yeah. after they were gone, man. Um, it's, it's awesome to be in a conflagration like that. Yeah, I need good. to see that band live. Yeah. I, I saw a live mm-hmm. stream last year and it was it was off the hook. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love I love that. And I love that she's, you know, Brittany Howard is one of those um, one of those artists who understands what it means to have a band that can really hit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I love that she that she lets the music go there. It's, it's awesome. Thank you for joining us today on Jazz United, which is a production of WBGO Studios. Our producer is Trevor Smith, and we want to thank him and thank you for subscribing. Uh, Please share the word about our show. Um, Your subscription is important, but so is your clout. So tell your friends. uh, And you can also follow WBGO uh, on Twitter, Facebook, wherever else. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at Nate Chenen. You can follow Greg Bryant at at GB underscore Watchman. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. This is Jazz United, and we'll see you again next time. Take care. Jazz United is made possible because of listeners like you. And we need your help to keep bringing you all the amazing jazz programming and podcasts from WBGO. Now, during our fall fund drive, is the perfect time to become a member by making a pledge of support. Visit wbgo.org support today.